0: Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to
1: achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr. Ralea Lu on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 40-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Aurelia Liu, a CREI Certified Reproductive Endocrinologist and Infertility Specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy-to-understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility, and all aspects of women's health, like today's topic, breast cancer. We love reading our listener reviews and work hard to take feedback on board. If you enjoy listening to Knocked Up and find our resource useful, please take a moment to leave a review. This really helps others to find us. Today we are speaking with Sarah Powell from Pink Hope, an Australian non-profit organisation for educating and preventing about hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. Sarah was diagnosed with breast cancer at 29 years old, but it was the news that she carries a BRCA1 mutation that sent her looking for support and information. Luckily, she found Crystal Barter and the Pink Hope community, and since then has been a big supporter of the charity by volunteering sharing her story and attending fundraisers. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining us today on Knocked Up. We've never discussed breast cancer before on this podcast, but we thought along with it being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, not all of us have been very good at keeping up with our checks during all of our lockdowns with COVID, and that this might serve as a good reminder. Sarah, will we start with you telling us a little bit about what is Pink Hope?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, Pink Hope is a preventative health hub. Um, so we're a charity that is dedicated to um, giving all individuals the information um, so that they can manage and assess their risk of cancer. So um, it was founded by uh, Crystal Butter. Um, she's a very inspirational, amazing woman, and her family have faced generations of cancer. She actually has a BRCA1 mutation um, and she, knowing, having that knowledge when she was 23, decided to have a preventative bilateral mastectomy. Um, And while she was in hospital recovering, she realised that there was nothing in Australia, there was no charity that was really dedicated to people that are at high risk and families that go through generations of cancer like her family had. So she set about changing that and, and founded Pink Hope. So that was about, was over a decade ago.
0: And I've actually been involved in Pink Hope's events over the years. I've been an invited speaker as a reproductive endocrinologist, gynecologist talking about fertility preservation because one of the things that is now hopefully offered to all women who haven't completed their family when they're diagnosed with a breast cancer is the opportunity to access fertility medicine so that they can preserve either eggs or embryos, or even just use medication that reduces the risk of if they need any chemotherapy of that damaging their ovaries. And I've helped many women over the years. And it's a roller coaster when that happens, because they've just been diagnosed, they've just been told they have a cancer that has potential to actually put their life in danger. And then at the same time, they're told that Potentially they have to put off having plans for having children until that cancer is under control and depending on the age of the woman that can be something they were immediately thinking about or it might be something they would have liked to have thought about in the next little while. And then also they have to, after having that really kind of slam of a diagnosis, uh, have to take in fertility information so quickly Um, Just as an example, if I see a patient and they're struggling to get pregnant, really I tend to see them two or three times before they actively undertake any treatment and there's ample time to really explain what's entailed in that treatment and give them options. When someone has a cancer diagnosis, we unfortunately have no alternative but to overwhelm them with information (laughs) very quickly about the options available and then ask them to make a super fast decision as to what they want to do on the timeline of their other treating doctors and the other therapies that that are asked of them. So I think it's so incredible to have a support network like Pink Hope that women not only who are at risk of a cancer, but also who have a breast cancer can turn to. And I've seen, Sarah, that on your forums that we follow like your Instagram there's a lot of um I guess sisterhood really people who have a cancer supporting other women who also may be in that circumstance can you tell us a bit about the mission of Pink Hope as it stands today
2: yeah absolutely so um and and if you don't mind me sort of going back to what you were just saying before, before I go on, um, I, I'm also a, a breast cancer survivor and I have a BRCA1 mutation as well and I was diagnosed at 29 and so I did that whole IVF journey and you're exactly right. Exactly what you're saying is it is you, one minute you're told you've got cancer but then they're saying, okay, well, you know, the, your, the treatment that we give you might make you infertile. So you now need to think about um, some preservation and um, so my husband and I, we went through uh, IVF, we froze embryos and, you know, you get one shot at it, you know, whereas obviously people who go through IVF, they get maybe a few t- times to, you know, work out what medication works and the levels and all of that sort of thing. But for me, I had one go, my my oncologist said, you've got um, a few weeks, do what you can. And then that's it. You know, we have to, we have to get on with chemo because um, I had quite an aggressive type of cancer and it is, it's such a roller coaster. And I think we ended up with five embryos. But interestingly, my story. Um, my my oncologist said to me, "Please don't get pregnant for the next two years. Your chance of a relapse is so high." And so I listened to him, and I fell pregnant literally weeks after I finished treatment. And um, I think that <laughs> it was just um, careless, probably. But I, I, you know, I'd sort of been told all along you might not get pregnant. You know, this, this, you know, you might not ever be able to fall pregnant naturally. So by some miracle, I managed to fall pregnant naturally as soon as I finished treatment. But then a few years later, when I wanted to try and get pregnant again, it was a whole other story for me. Um, and having those embryos was was great. I, I I didn't I tried to use them, didn't quite work for me. But um, in the end, I did fall natu- pregnant naturally again. But it took a long time, and I actually think a lot of the medication that I was taking to try and use my embryos actually helped me um, conceive. So, so yeah, so I, I've definitely lived that journey of IVF, you know, after cancer. Um. So Pink Hope, we, we like you talked about, um, we it is about the sisterhood as well. It's about providing a really safe space for people to connect. Um, as a high-risk person myself that has, has had a, a mastectomy, you know, when I spoke to my friends who haven't been through cancer or um, haven't, you know, aren't at high risk, you know, I think for them it felt like I was just having a boob job and it, it's not, you know, it's it's just a whole different thing. So having um, women and other people that really understand and get it is just so important. So that's really one aspect of Pink Hope is providing the connection and the support. Um, The other aspect, obviously, we advocate for women um, and for high-risk people. So we provide lots of programs. Um, We have information days, which I think you were saying you've you've been to. Now, um, that was pre-COVID. Um, now, since COVID, we're not doing any face-to-face events um, for the foreseeable future. It's just not safe for our community to be together at the moment. So we're doing a lot of um, educational uh, webinars and that sort of thing. We do one a month at the moment, um, just so that we can make sure people still have that information that they need. Um, and we're also doing really small group um, events which we call she shares. So normally they would, a bunch of women we would um, in each state would get together in a cafe. Or, or something like that so that they can have a chat and connect. So unfortunately we're having to do it by Zoom, which isn't quite the same, but um, but it's better than nothing and it's still really important so that, um, you know, we have that ability for women to connect.
0: Yeah. And Pink Hope is also now doing some preventative work for all women and one of the reasons that, uh, that really inspired me to ask you to come on on the podcast recently was I was invited to one of those events which I thought was amazing, talking through how a woman should do breast self-examination with support. Could you please tell us about that event for our listeners because there's still time for them to join, and we will put the link to the event in the show notes of this episode.
2: So yeah, so we we um, we've got. A, we call them Edge of Evening. We have an Edge of Evening series that we've been running throughout this year, and the one that we have coming up on the 27th of October at 8 p.m., um, being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, we are we have an incredible uh, breast care nurse from the McGrath Foundation, um, and Crystal Barter, our founder. Uh, uh, we'll talk to everyone about being breast aware. So it's really about um, helping people understand how to check their breasts. Um, we've created an amazing video um, to really simplify it. It's a one-minute video and it shows how easy it is. I think we've overcomplicated checking your breasts, and therefore people tend to just not do it because they don't really know how to and they're not sure what to do. So it's really important that you just understand and know the, the normal look and feel of your breasts so that if anything changes, you're vig- vigilant to it and you go and get checked. Um, Our campaign this month for Breast Cancer um, Awareness Month is less about awareness. I think we're all aware of breast cancer, but it's about action. We want people to take action. Um, We know because of COVID that um, screening is down, health checks generally are down, people aren't seeing their doctors, they're just not prioritising their health for many reasons Um, and we we really just want to encourage women not to do that, prioritise your health. It's so important Um, and if anything isn't right, um, our campaign is actually if you... Feel, see, or sense something, say something, go and see your doctor, make that appointment, it's really important.
1: So Sarah, I turned 40 this year and I thought I was gonna get a mammogram, and turns out it's not until I'm 50. So I have to tell you, I have never I've never done anything about I'm very aware of breast cancer, but I've never done a check, I've never been checked. I'm guessing there are a lot of women in a similar position to me. When should we start doing these checks? Should I learn how to do them now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was 29 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it, although um, in high-risk families and, and people with BRCA mutations, that it, it unfortunately is quite common. Um, in the general population, under 30 is uncommon, but it still happens. People get breast cancer under 30. Um and I think the earlier you can do this, it just becomes part of your routine. And that's what it's about. If it's just something you do every month and takes you one minute, two minutes in the shower, you know, why wouldn't you just start doing it right now? I think um, something that we try and encourage people to do is, is put a reminder in. But, you know, as long as it's just not something you're going to ignore, it's it's a reminder. Make sure it's a day that's going to work for you. And, you know, the first of the month is just something traditionally we've done. But that first of the month might not work. You might be the first Saturday or the first Sunday or whatever it is that works for you but um, you've just got to remind yourself to do this every month and then once it's in your routine that's it you know it'll just be what you do.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience of what it feels like to have a cancer diagnosis and how did you manage to get through that because it would have been very challenging and very confronting at 29?
2: Yeah absolutely and um, it was it was a shock um, and Although I, I have a BRCA mutation, I don't have a family history, so that actually wasn't discovered until um, a long time after my diagnosis. At the time, i was going to say, how did you know you had the BRCA one? You, you didn't at the time. Yeah, no, I had no idea. And my my family are um, my, my on my dad's side are um, Eastern European Jewish, so Ashkenazi Jewish, which so the BRCA mutations are quite common in um, much more common in in Ashkenazi Jewish women. Um, but I didn't know any of that at the time, and so I found my tumor, my lump, when I was washing in the shower. And really, luckily for me, the tumor was right sort of here, so it's right over, sorry, under my arm. And so when I was washing um, in the shower, I felt it straight away. Now, had it been sort of under my nipple or some somewhere like that, I, it may have been a lot long, you know, further along. But by the time I found it, so I found this lump, and um, I was in Thailand actually at the time. And I told my husband, and he just said yeah, but you're 29, like, what, what do you think it is? And I said, I don't know, but it doesn't feel right. So I went home and I went to my doctor and she said, do you have a family history? And I said, no. And she said, no, you're too young, you know, to have cancer. But luckily for me, she still sent me for an ultrasound um, because, you know, I hear lots of stories where doctors don't do that. So I feel very lucky that she still, you know, sent me for the check. And that when they did the ultrasound, the sonographer said, oh, have you been sick recently? You've got some quite enlarged lymph nodes in your breast. And I said, No. So I said, oh, okay, well, you know, that's it. Because you know how they are when you, they do those checks. They don't ever really tell you anything. You have to go back to the doctor. So back to the doctor <laughs> I went. And, um, and she said, oh, okay, they, they want you to follow this up. And and so I went to um, a breast clinic and they did the biopsy. And and the um, the doctor that did the biopsy actually said to me after, not at the time, but she said, I knew you had cancer. She, I mean, they see enough tumors. They know, you know, when they see what if it's cancer or not, um, so yeah, but but you know, when I they said to me, look, we'll we'll get the biopsy results overnight, come back tomorrow. My husband didn't even come with me to the appointment because he was like, You're 29, you what it's not gonna be anything. Um, and of course he feels really bad about that now, mostly because I make him <laughs> feel bad about it. But yeah. So, so yeah. So so yeah, so it was it was a shock. And um, but I think, you know, it, it's funny, at that point in my life, I didn't have children yet and and, um, you know, honestly, if I think about it at the time, it just, it, the whole thing was really, really inconvenient and I was pissed off, you know. And I, I just, you know, the, I had, you know, the chemo, losing my hair, you know, just how I felt. You know, I felt pretty yuck. Oh, and yeah. Like, just everything. And you're I'm, young. You don't yeah. expect this to happen young. No, exactly. Um, and, and we were thinking about having children. And so, you know, I just, this whole thing put a, you know, um, at the time, I thought it was going to be a couple of years, but obviously um, I had <laughs> different ideas when I fell pregnant pretty soon after my treatment. But, um, yeah, it, and also I'm from the UK, so I had no family here. My husband's family live in Queensland, so um, we sort of had to go through it all on our own. But, yeah, it, it was um, it was scary. Um, but I also was, I think, being younger, um, in some ways that helped me a bit because I felt... I guess I just had a very different outlook I, I can't even imagine if I was diagnosed now and um, I think it would be quite a different prospect Um, I also looking back as well you know my tumor was a, a triple negative um really um grade three I think it's called tumor but you know where they, it's a really fast growing tumor and I think it was about two centimeters when they found it but it already moved into like lymph nodes within my breast it was I often think another month could have been such a different story for me. You know, I'm I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm 14 years now of um, cancer-free, but, you know, so many people don't get that opportunity, so it could have turned out quite differently.
0: And were you, Sarah, in the situation that a lot of women find themselves in, that you had surgery and then a
2: delay to reconstruction? So because I didn't know about my BRCA mutation at the time, um, I had just a lumpectomy. Because the tumour was small enough and we were confident enough, I had a sentinel node biopsy that showed that it hadn't moved into any lymph nodes sort of outside of my breast. Um, so I I chose just to have the lumpectomy, I had radiation, and then I had chemo. But when my daughter was about six months old, I just started researching. I think I just wasn't comfortable with getting breast cancer at 29 because it is pretty uncommon if you don't have a genetic mutation. And when I started to do research and I read about the, the Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry and I thought, mm, this is, you know, this kind of is starting to feel like perhaps this isn't just, a, you know, a standard. Too coincidental. Exactly. So I, I went to Peter Mac and told them everything. Did you go they, to the
0: familial cancer clinic there?
2: Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, I refer um, a
2: lot of patients there. It's fantastic. It, it's We're so lucky in Melbourne to have that resource. Um, and as soon as I, I went to see them and they just said, yep, you're eligible for testing for sure. Um, and back then... um, yeah how many years ago that was about 12 years ago um, they said it would take four months to get the results it's changed so much you know in all this time and I I think like four months so but so I just sort of said okay did the blood test but they actually called me after two months and said you know we've got your results and I just thought oh that's not good it's if they've got it quicker than four months it's probably not going to be not going to be good so so, yeah, so, they, so when they called me in and said, um, you've got a BRCA mutation and, you know, these are your options, these are things you need to consider, and I said, oh, well, it's okay because I've already had breast cancer. And they said, no, your chance of getting it again and again and again, you know, because I sort of thought, oh, well, I ticked that box so, we, you know, I don't have to worry. And they said, no, you, you know, you do need to worry. Um, and so I went away and for the next year I just did really quite, um, you know, heavy screening just and I think after my – I was doing screening every few months maybe, but after the – after about a year, they found a lump in one of my screenings, and they said, "Oh, we need to biopsy it." And of course, these things always happen. I find on a Friday, so you have to wait the whole weekend, and that anxiety that we talk about—it um, just—it's—it was awful. And I just basically that weekend, I just thought, "That's it. I'm going to have a mastectomy. I can't live like this. I can't live waiting." You know, finding lumps, and you know, basically, I felt like I was waiting to get cancer again. Um, so I made the decision to have a mastectomy then. Um, I had an immediate reconstruction um, I went the, the only I think for me the disappointing things I wish I'd known about the BRCA mutation at the time and had a mastectomy then because I probably wouldn't have had radiation because mm. radiation it weakens your chest wall so if on my right side I've had to have my lat muscle from my back moved to my chest to kind of give me um support for the implant um mm. and you know when you take a major muscle out of your back it does have an impact not not terribly um but I find as I'm getting older and <laughs> all those muscles around it that are working so much harder to support me. Um, yeah, exactly. They're compensating. So, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, something that would be great and I know that it, it is being talked about and there's a, quite a lot of implications, but it's a population based testing for things like, you yeah. know, like mutations. But so there you know, is there's... a
0: program in um, in Melbourne called Gene Screen, and that is offered several times a year. Um, through generally up up until now for the for the Jewish community in um, Beth Weitzman Community Centre up until now after COVID there'll probably be online webinars but that's for population screening for the BRCA mutations with genetic testing and the um, the Murdoch Institute has been involved in providing the education uh, for that and the Victorian Clinical VCGS. What's the S stand for? I have to look that up. <laughs> but um, but they've been providing that for the last couple of years for for the option of population bracket screening now.
2: Yeah, that's great. I think my only concern would be um, like personally, I can't get any insurance. It it's been so hard. So I think there's there's got a lot of work's got to be done in that space to not allow insurance companies um to to basically not insure you um. I finally managed to get some life insurance, but I can't get anything like trauma. And even if you exclude cancer, they still, it's really, really hard to get insured. Um, My daughter's 13 this year. And um, once she's 18, she's eligible for testing, but it has to be her choice. And she, you know, she, she may choose not to, but, you know, if she chooses that she wants to get testing that, you know, unless it's changed dramatically before then, these are things we'll have to consider, like getting her insurance and, you know, making sure that she's prepared before she gets that test result.
0: Yeah, it's it's been a problem internationally as well in the US, particularly in terms of health insurance being denied to people with all kinds of genetic conditions. And you're right, it, it's a barrier to access screening, which really we need to work on from a legislative point of view for equity. Yeah. So there's lots of kind of ways that BRCA kind of interacts with me in the IVF world as well. And, you know, in your situation where you had a confronting cancer diagnosis, as you said, you really only had that one chance at going through the IVF process. But I've treated many couples over the years who've found out not that they've had a cancer, but they've had a BRCA mutation in in two ways. One is to create embryos and screen them to try and avoid passing on that condition, or not condition, it's adult onset issue. So it's not a condition that happens in childhood. It's a very difficult decision to choose IVF in that context without there being any infertility, but it is an option to um, when you have the luxury of time um, to select embryos specifically for transfer that are, are not carriers of the BRCA mutations. And the other thing I've done recently is exclusion testing for a woman who did not want to know her own BRCA status. But knew that she could be a carrier and didn't want the possibility, should she have been a carrier, to pass it on. So I've done the exclusion testing in the past for many things, like Huntington's disease, where uh, that's a that's a a brain disorder which happens generally in the fifth decade of life, where you kind of get a genetic form of dementia. And I've done exclusion testing many times for Huntington's disease, which is a dominant condition, but this was the first time I've done. Exclusion testing for BRCA. So you you don't need to know your own status to ensure that you don't pass on a mutation to your children. What we do when we don't know the status for exclusion testing in IVF is we know which side of your family the BRCA came from. We do we do that testing in the generation before. Because usually if you don't know your status and you know you might have it, it's because you've got a parent who we know has the bracket gene. And so we know where the bracket gene is on what chromosome and we know which chromosome came from that parent in you. So we can work that out without actually knowing if you got the option of two chromosomes from that parent in that particular area of our genome. And so we can work out in embryos to make sure that they actually got their chromosome from your opposite parent, because we get a copy of each of our chromosomes from each of our parents. So that's a way that we can use IVF and genetic testing for the advantage. But the reason that that's not very useful at all to families where there's an acute cancer diagnosis is that, you know, what we really need is lots of embryos in order to do that. We need lots and lots of embryos because we're going to exclude embryos from treatment. And if we can only have one shot at IVF and one shot at making embryos, um, we wouldn't want to put that burden on a woman or a family that, you know, that they they had to exclude any embryos from, from the possibility of treatment because, you know, BRCA is one of these conditions where you have a normal life, you know, so much, you know, I don't think anyone with BRCA would ever look back on their life and say, I wish I wasn't alive. Um, you know, it's, it's not one of those things. You know, we treat a lot of conditions in IVF, like spinal muscular atrophy, for example, where babies don't survive and it's terrible for parents where they lose their child before the age of two. And, you know, there is a very clear-cut thing that IVF is very helpful, but BRCA is so grey, it's such a grey area, Uh, particularly now actually that new treatments are coming coming on board um, that might reduce the risk of breast cancer in BRCA carriers significantly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's the BRCA P trial at the moment, which is um, for particularly for BRCA one women, um, which is you know a drug that will um, stop them, like you say, getting breast and ovarian cancer. So there's there's definitely, um, and and this is obviously so important for me, having a 13 year old daughter, to think that you know I really hope that her options are a lot different to what mine were. Um, I think there's a lot going on in the breast cancer space. I don't think there's as much in ovarian. I, I think and but the difference with ovarian cancer is they know that your risk doesn't really start till you're about 40. Um, and so you can still have your children. And um, before, you know, I had my ovaries out when I was 38. Um, I, I wanted to wait till I was 40, but I started, the anxiety started to build as I got older. And I just thought, you know, now's the time. But um, the problem with breast cancer is it, they see it, it seems to get younger in every generation. Like in Crystal's family, um, you know, it was in each generation, the, the, it was getting younger and younger. And, um, you know, if I'm 29, it, it really worries me for my daughter. So I'm just hoping there's a lot better options for her um, because I do think if she is, um, she has inherited that mutation from me, then um, she'll probably have to make some options a lot younger, you know, than, than 29. We've spoken a lot about um, people with the BRCA gene. Is there a difference
1: in breast cancer if you don't have it?
2: No, but what what they do find with um, BRCA women is they often get triple negative cancer. Um, so that means it's just negative to progesterone, estrogen and um, HER protein receptor. So the, the it tends to be quite an aggressive type of cancer. And the treatment options are quite limited um, for triple negative because if you've got a hormone positive cancer or an HER positive cancer, there there are a lot of treatment options you can have after chemo. So, you know, chemo and and radiation tend to be sort of standard for most people with breast cancer. But um, if you've got a hormone positive cancer, you might go on to take something like tamoxifen um, and herceptin is if you've got a, you know, an HER um, protein. So, it's the the options are a lot more limited I think for um triple negative and that yeah so I think that's the main difference but um BRCA women can also get other types of cancer as well breast cancer is that how you
0: found out about pink hope as getting involved as a cancer survivor
2: or did you start with pink hope in another capacity so um, interestingly, I've only been at Pink Hope for five weeks. So as, as oh, an employee. Oh, yeah, welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, yeah, so I joined five weeks ago as the programs and operations manager, um, but I have known Crystal for about yeah, 10, 11 years. Um, mm-hmm. I found Crystal and Pink Hope in its very early days um, when as soon as I found out I had a BRCA mutation, um, you know, I got on Google, which is what you do, and uh, found Pink Hope, and it was just amazing. I, I just went from feeling really lost and alone, which is exactly what Crystal describes when she was recovering in her hospital bed. She was there was just no support there, no information. Um, to all of a sudden, there was all these women that that understood. You know, they were in the same situation as me. And um, one of my friends who um, I made. Back then, you know, in the early days of Pink Hope is still one of my best friends now. And, you know, so the connections that you make are really important and they're lifelong. It's so important
1: to have that support network. We find that with fertility patients as well, knowing that there's people going through what you're going through or similar. It really creates a bond and helps you get through some of the toughest things.
0: One thing that masks have put a bit of a spanner in the works in that I loved that Pink Hope did last year and, and before was the lipstick day. I remember I did a, an Instagram shot for, um I was sent a message to do it, <laughs> wearing hot pink lips. <laughs> are, are you guys still doing that this year?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um it was a few weeks ago that we had Bright Pink Lipstick Day. So yeah, I mean you're right it is hard with the masks but um look it's it's our annual fundraiser um and it it's the the premise behind it is we want people to save lives with your lips that you know that's what we say so it's about encouraging people to have a conversation with your family about your health history know know what what kind of health issues have been in your family because if you're aware um you, you can work out what your risk is Um, I've I've got a great story this one um, is actually through the friends that I've made through Pink Hope and she her um, mum she lost her mum sadly when she was 17 to ovarian cancer and then she was diagnosed with breast cancer at 30 while she was breastfeeding her her oldest son and they tested her for the for the BRCA gene and it turns out that she has a BRCA1 and a BRCA2 mutation so um very rare. I think there's something like 50 families in the world would have both mutations. And they believe that she inherited one from her mum and made her own two. Um, so we we actually jokingly call her a super mutant. She's just like, you know, she's just next level of, of BRCA mutation. But she um, she's an only child and her mum's an only child. And so she didn't really have much family to share this information with. And then, of course, thanks to Facebook, um, one of her mum's cousins got in contact with her and she told them about the, she said, look, you know, you should know that, you know, mum had a BRCA mutation, I have it too. And so um, her mum's cousin went and got tested and sure enough, she has a BRCA1 mutation. Now she would have been at that age where they said, look, you probably should think about taking your ovaries out. You know, you've got quite a high risk of ovarian cancer. When they took her ovaries out, um, she had ovarian cancer. And really early stage. Um, but the reality is, you know, she said, I, I, this probably saved my life because we know that ovarian cancer is often diagnosed Um quite late when it's more advanced the survival rates are pretty poor and so she said you know if I hadn't had that knowledge my you know things could have been very different and you know potentially you know she she might not have survived or she might have had to go through quite intense treatment you know so so that's just one really good example of you know sharing your information sharing your health history can really save lives.
1: I think it's also worth reminding everyone that it even though in it is COVID times. It's important to get your cervical screening done as well. The same as it is important to do your breast screening.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is what our campaign is all about. It's, we can't delay getting our checks. Um, you know, I am in Melbourne and um, same as you guys. And, um, I was actually, um, just sent my children back to school last week, which was really exciting. And, but I was thinking about, you know, the last, you know, how actually I, I was trying to work out how many weeks we'd homeschooled. I, I think it was about 18 weeks and that's without school holidays and. During that period, you know, I still had to be a wife, a parent, an employee. My husband and I worked full-time throughout that period. And, and I was an unpaid, uh, untrained substitute teacher, basically. And I, I basically felt like I was doing a terrible job of all of them, to be honest, at some points. But, you know, if you added in, and I'm not the only one, there were many of us doing this in Melbourne, right? But then, if you add in, say, I found a little lump or a rash or something that wasn't quite right you have to prioritize. We only, you know, we were trying to juggle so many balls at that time. I'm not sure how, you know, I would have dealt with that as well. And I think that's what's happened. People have just said, well, it's not making me really sick. So I'll just deal with that in a few weeks. I'll deal with that in a few months. And and then the, I think the other aspect too is um, hospitals were seen as unsafe. You know, there have been outbreaks and people just think, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, but you know there are plenty of options people have to remember there's telehealth you know if you don't want to leave your house at the very least you know to have a conversation on the phone with your doctor to identify do you need to you know is this urgent enough that you do need to go in and see someone so so yeah I, I think it's just encouraging and you're right it's, it's not just your, your mammogram or your your screening it's your cervical cancer check it's your um your skin check you know it's whatever it is your blood test whatever you need to do you've just got to make sure we're still doing those things it's really important.
1: So, Sarah, if people want to find out more about Pink
2: Hope, where do they go? Yep. Yeah, so we've got a fantastic website, um, pinkhope.org.au, um, and everything is there. And look, we, we have a really um, amazing social media presence as well. And um, so you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, all the usual places. And um, we have really good blog posts regularly where we get experts to, to write up informative articles um, about stuff that's relevant, I guess, to our community. Um, so, you know, that's a good place as well. And we have really great support groups on Facebook, and um, state-based um, groups so that people can connect as well. So heaps of ways to get involved and, and find out. But the website's the, the best place to start.
0: And we strongly encourage everyone here who's in our audience that if you do want to join the online event, the webinar to learn about how to check your breasts, I strongly encourage you to join and we'll put the link in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah, and for sharing your personal story. That was wonderful.
2: And for five weeks, what a spokesperson you make. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's amazing I um I, you know I, to be honest, it's just amazing that I'm working at Pink Hope because I've been involved with them for so long um, and I'm so passionate about this, you know it's really personal to me um so I actually feel quite honored that um that I'm working for Pink Hope.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Knocked Up. For more information on breast cancer, fertility and women's health, you can visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. We'll also leave some links to Pink Hope and other resources in the show notes. Many of our episodes come from your questions, so if you have one, please be in touch via our email, podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast. You can get more information about us on our other accounts at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr. Lou. See you next week. <laughs>